When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of July 21st, 2014. On this week's show, we'll look at whether Mike Trout or anyone else in this generation of baseballers will approach the celebrity slash stardom slash fame slash people knowing about himness of Derek Jeter. We'll also talk to Ansley Jemison, the assistant general manager of the Iroquois Nationals lacrosse team, about his squad's third place finish at the World Lacrosse Championships. And finally, NBC Sports' Joe Posnanski will join us to talk about the late red clots the Washington Generals coach who lost more than 14,000 games to the Harlem Globetrotters. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. And, Stefan, you had an amazing anagram moment that you want to share with the listeners. I do. I, w- I was at the gymnasium over the weekend. I was nude. catching up on... Fully nude. Fully nude. Catching up on uh, back issues of The Gist with Mike Pesca as I do at the gymnasium. I wasn't at the gym. Oh, I see. I see what you mean. I didn't, I didn't get the comma in your sentence. <laughs> you were checking on Mike's back issues. The gist <laughs> with Mike Pesca is has some back problems. interviewing some guy that writes a blog about Archie, the comic. He does a podcast about Archie. I'm sorry. Riverdale podcast. He, the guy that does the Riverdale podcast about Archie, the comic, because Archie has been killed off in some versions of Archie. <laughs> And as is my multitasking want at the gym while I am pedaling on the stationary bike, I also anagram National Scrabble Championships coming up. 
They are talking about Archie and Veronica and the other characters, and these letters pop up on my phone. A-D-E-G-H-J-U. And my task is to anagram those letters, and that is not a very hard anagram. Go ahead. Jughead! Jughead! I nearly fell off of the stationary bike. <laughs> and Jughead's a playable word in Scrabble? That's why it popped up as an anagram. Yeah, Jughead's good. Archie, not good. Veronica, as I told Pesca afterward, Veronica is good. It's got many meanings. A bullfight pass. Oh, really? A handkerchief with the face of Christ on it. Yeah. And it's a, I think it's a flower, too. The inspiration for these and many other anagrams, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. How are you, Mike? Hi, I'm well. How did you feel when you heard about this Jughead anagram? Can you, we're, doing an oral, we're doing an oral history of Stefan finding that anagram. <laughs> I fell off Stefan's bike. <laughs> it was one of those uh, stationary bicycle built for two. <laughs> that is just they a lovely have, That's tableau. a great idea. I don't even think the unstationary (laughs) bicycle bill for two is a good idea. I got a good idea. The stationary penny farthing bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Last Tuesday, the Angels, 22-year-old Mike Trout became the second youngest player in baseball history to be named MVP of the All-Star Game, hitting a double and triple and driving in two runs. And here, via Deadspin, is what Fox's broadcast of that All-Star Game sounded like. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. 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 Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Jeter. Derek Jeter. Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. After a while, it doesn't even really sound like a name. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. With that man and or a collection of sounds went two for two and what will be his final All-Star game. And according to Deadspin's count, his name was invoked 100 times. There's a lot of talk before, during, and after all of that Derek Jeterism about this being a torch-passing moment. Uh, Jason Stark of ESPN wrote, this is the night. This is the time. This is the place where their paths diverge. He wrote it in that tone of voice. In that same piece, Are you sure he wasn't writing the score to a really bad musical? (laughs) I think both. Both in the same, all in the same. Jeter, the musical. Coming to an afterball near you, hopefully. Stark, in that same piece, cited a poll by a company that measures celebrity appeal And that poll found that 75% of those surveyed were, quote, aware, unquote, of Jeter, but only 26% were aware of Trout. And I did an informal survey of my Slate colleagues this morning, and it seemed like people who knew sports or followed sports knew who Mike Trout was, but nobody who was not a sports fan had any clue that this guy was an athlete, that he played baseball or anything about him. So does that say something about baseball circa 2014 or does it say something about just the fact that Jeter is one of the few athletes who transcended and became a larger kind of celebrity definitely says something about baseball because Mike Trout is a guy who has never won a world series or even a playoff game right so Derek Jeter became Derek Jeter because he was part of the most recognizable franchise and a linchpin, if not the best player for those many years. Of course, he embodied greatness and he's in the top 10 in the all-time hits list and not to take away anything from Derek Jeter. But if you're going to be the guy without the personality that reaches out and grabs you, like Yasiel Puig does have that personality that could do that, does have that. Everyone will have an opinion because everyone on sports radio will have a hot take. All Mike Trout is, is the best player in baseball. And that wouldn't have happened. Derek Jeter wouldn't have become Derek Jeter if he was only the best player in baseball. It had to be this special set of circumstances where he was 
was the linchpin of the Yankees having that particular personality and having the Yankees not just be the Yankees, but be the Yankees that won five uh, world championships during his tenure, unless I miscounted and it was six. And he wasn't the best player in baseball pretty much ever during mm. his career. I mean, there were better players throughout the 90s and the 2000s in any given season. So, yeah, I think it is about baseball, but it's it's also about the sport vis-a-vis stardom. I mean, we went through a period in the 1980s and 90s where stardom in baseball was largely a function of how many home runs you could hit and about eclipsing these sacred records. And that was all proven to be a lie. And therefore, I think there's this now... A lie. It was a lie. It was proven to be a lie. So and now... that proof came from... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. From Major His League wife. Baseball. And so now we've moved into an era of sort of passive celebrity in baseball. And whether that's a function of the personalities in the sport or this prevailing sort of re-energizing of this ethos of baseball as this doer game where we play by a subset of plays by its own subset of rules about fairness and doing it the right way and the cardinal way and having a team of relatively anonymous do-gooder players who scrap their way to championships or whether it's about something larger about baseball sort of loss of space in the sort of uh, the conversation about elite athletes. I'm not sure, but it's definitely different. Well, I think it is also common though. I mean, the, the fame that Jeter has, baseball is a necessary ingredient. He wouldn't be famous if he hadn't been a Yankee who won the World Series. But the reason he's as famous as he is has nothing to do with sports. It has to do with him dating a lot of famous, attractive women and becoming a tabloid kind of figure. And well, if you yeah. look at if you look at the athletes who are the most famous in the US, I mean like Tom Brady is another example of a guy who became famous because he was great at sports and then has become ultra famous for reasons outside. And that can also be possible if you do something infamous like Aaron Hernandez. Like that guy is probably more famous than Mike Trout because he's an alleged murderer. So, you know, what could Mike Trout do that would put him on that plane? I don't think there's anything he can do on a baseball field, even if he did win the World Series, that would make him as famous as Derek Jeter. I mean, Joe DiMaggio he... was a tabloid star. I mean, there, there are reasons athletes in previous eras became great. Jeff Passan has a, a long piece sort of comparing Puig and Trout on Yahoo. And I sort of, I dispute a lot of what he writes about. He sets up this argument that Puig is magnetic, but he won't be a star anymore because baseball isn't the kind of sport that embraces that kind of stardom. And I think that runs counter to everything we know about baseball and baseball history. I mean, yeah, baseball always embraces players who become public figures for whatever reason, for their personality or their charisma, whether it's Reggie Jackson or Bill Lee or in more recent times. I mean, how about all of the Boston Red Sox and their long beards and their weirdness? I mean, there are reasons athletes become celebrities and saying nothing, you know, being an anodyne quote and an anodyne personality doesn't really elevate you in the popular conversation. Would Mike Trout be have a different sort of celebrity if he played in New York and the Yankees won five championships? Absolutely. Right. But that's the whole thing. Baseball is different from basketball and football where you can become a star without 
even winning or making the playoffs. There's only one chance. Baseball is a regional sport, and people like their own baseball teams, but they don't like baseball. The only way to break through is not even to make the postseason. It's to make and win the World Series, and probably to do it a couple of times. So if the Red Sox teams from last year kept winning World Series, we'd start thinking a lot about the different personalities of guys on those Red Sox teams. And if the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, oh my God, does that trip off the tongue or what? If they somehow were in the World Series for like four seasons in a row and Trout was the center, he'd absolutely become one of the most famous athletes. But barring that, he has no path to becoming a famous athlete. Well, so Trout is as boring and anodyne as Jeter when it comes to his interactions with the media. You know, he said he grew up idolizing Jeter. I was setting goals to myself. If I ever get the chance to get to the big leagues, that's how I want to play. The way he carries himself on and off the field. He was asked during the All-Star game if he was Jeter's successor. He's like, I don't know, which is uh, certainly the politically correct answer. But he has like – he's getting like all the stations of stardom. Like he has the Subway commercial. He's, you know, being touted by Major League Baseball as the face of the sport. But I do think that there's going to be a higher bar – now for the sport for all the reasons that we've cited and the fact that he's like the greatest player at his age in baseball history if you look at wins above replacement i do think that if it was 50 years ago you know bud selig says you know he's like mickey mantle and it's hard to imagine that a player like mickey mantle such as mickey mantle (laughs) in mickey mantle's era would not have have a much higher name recognition just in the broader world than Mike Trout does. Because LeBron did in Cleveland before he won anything, because it's possible in these other sports to have that sort of name recognition, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, Bryce Harper was... I was going to say, and because kids cared more about baseball then. Every kid cared about baseball, not just their team. And Bryce Harper was supposed to be LeBron James. Sports Illustrated consciously echoed the LeBron cover. They said the chosen one with Bryce Harper, you know, the best most exciting prodigy in sports since LeBron. And Bryce Harper is kind of a more interesting person on the surface. He has more interesting hair than Mike Trout does. He um, seems like more of a cocky kind of jerk. So you can have more of an opinion. Is he a cocky jerk? Is he not a cocky jerk? With Mike Trout, there's nothing really to have a conversation about. He's great. But like, what else is there really to engage with? And I'm not saying that that's better or worse. And I'm not saying that being famous is like necessarily something that he should aspire to. It's just something to observe that if he continues to be great at the level that he's great for 10 or 15 years, eventually he will become way more famous than he is, but he will not become. He'll become famous in an elder statesman sort of way. So unless he plays in New York and, and wins the way Jeter won, you know, and what, what did we celebrate about Jeter? I mean, there've been books written about Derek Jeter. The captain. We celebrate the captain and we celebrate the fact that he was Ripken-esque and showed up every day and played the game the right way and won five championships with a lot of players and a gigantic payroll. So those things tend to trump the need for the other stuff. And then in the place of the other stuff, the haircut and the and, and the outrageous comments, you can substitute he's a he was a gritty player. A captain, Derek Jeter, you know, and and that assumes its own level of of well, the fact that he was a cipher and didn't say anything allowed people to project that stuff onto him, right? And the fact that that works if you have five championships and you're in New York and you're dating 
models. models. If nothing else, the this has occasioned the world's worst Bob Shepard impressions. So, <laughs> kudos, kudos. Hey, to I Mike do Trout a very that. good Bob Shepard. Also, the impression name Mike Trout is just a terrible name in terms of anyone wanting. Bob Shepard you know, would have hated the name Mike Trout. He hated Mike two Trout. syllable names. Yes, the he supposed he nickname, the Millville Media, Mike Nelson Trout. Oh, that is the worst. Whereas you know, I've talked about Derek Jeter as a name and the rhythm and the cadence Derek and all the consonants Jeter. are different and all the vowels are e. It's the greatest. What do you think, Mike, about the possibility that the biggest name, the most famous name in baseball for baseball fans and outside, I guess could be one of two things. Number one, could be somebody like Yasiel Puig, who's Cuban, who's um, could appeal to, you know, the large and growing Latino audience for the game or completely unrelated. Could the most famous player in baseball be a pitcher, somebody like Clayton Kershaw, who you could argue, along with Trout, is you know one and one A of the best players. Or has there Felix been Hernandez? Has there been a, a time, maybe Roger Clemens, where a pitcher has been elevated to be the, the person that you look to as like the embodiment of baseballdom? Yes, because and the pitcher is of course always the foil. I just think that won't happen because of injuries. I mean, Kershaw was on the DL a little bit. Now, Kershaw does play in L.A., so city and market does matter. So it just seems harder for me to do it as a pitcher, but only because of what we know about pitcher injuries rather than the inability of pitchers to occupy that space in our brains. And I think that guys who have been great pitchers have actually captured the public's imagination. I would venture to say that at the height of his uh, potency or prowess or whatever you call it, more people knew Randy Johnson than knew just about any non-Yankee in the game. Now, he had a lot of... He didn't have a good personality at all, but he was distinctive looking and he was impossible to hit. And he was in the postseason and in the World Series and dominating the World Series, which is, again, unlike football and basketball, the only way, I think, to really break through and to make even casual non-baseball fans know And he killed a bird, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, but all that stuff. The thing is about, you guys have been saying about the lack of personality. When you achieve greatness, we'll find things about your personality to say, oh, look, that's a speck of personality. Well, to your point about pitchers, there are all these manias that come up around pitchers, right? Mark Fidrich, Fernando Valenzuela, Hideo Nomo, but pitchers kind of burn out, burn quickly. Um, And so it's you're not prone to have these very long kind of career associations. Tom Seaver maybe would be an exception. And he's somebody like, unlike Roger Clemens, who is kind of beloved for oh, his Maddox. entire career. Nolan Ryan Greg would be Maddox, Nolan Ryan, another example. But they seem, it's more rare than, than with hitters. But pitchers are also occasions and they pitch only every five games or every six days. And when the start coincides with a home game, you know, the local news, when, when it becomes a phenomenon, could do a story on that. So, you know, I've always thought that baseball's constant nature worked against it. Uh, I definitely think that with uh, hockey and basketball, you know, I think that football's great asset is that it's only one a week. And so a pitcher really only pitches once a week. So actually, that's kind of in his favor if you want to become a phenomenon. And as far as Puig goes, you know, we talked about this before, I think last year. It seems to me, and maybe this will be proven incorrect, that somebody who will burn brightly and, and burn fast as well. I mean, not necessarily just because of the the stupid criticism that surrounds him for not being appropriate for whatever reasons that stupid people are saying baseball players need to act in a given week, but just the way the recklessness with which he plays and also the fact that he doesn't really control the strike zone in the same way. I mean, you can just imagine him 
being, you know, a star for the next few years and just not if we if we look 10 years from now, it'd be hard to imagine Mike Trout not still being an all-star. It would be easy to imagine Yesiel Puig not being an all-star. Yeah, I think if you ask the baseball experts who look at the underlying numbers, that they would say that Puig has in some ways been outperforming his underlying numbers, but the basis for Trout's greatness, things like strikeout rates and the ability to take walks and stuff like that, it is in line with he sh- he is as good as he should be according to you know the fundamentals. But from purely narrative terms, if as you project, Mike, in 10 years, Puig and Trout become elite Hall of Fame caliber players, I think baseball is set up pretty well to have one guy whose dramatic backstory about fleeing poverty and oppression in Cuba. And then on the other hand, you've got your your American bred white guy, white hero, quiet, shows up every day at the ballpark. You have two perfect narratives for sports writers to latch onto and create this sort of mythic sports hero of the future. What's the what's the narrative around the white hero that he's white? That he's a he's a lunch pail guy. He's Ripken and Jeter. He's the he's the heir apparent. He's like David Eckstein combined with an even better <laughs> David Eckstein. All right, a quick word about our membership program Slate Plus. You can sign up for $5 a month at slate.com/hangupplus. Want to give a plug this week to our great Orange is the New Black podcast starring Willa Paskin, our TV critic, and a rotating cast of guest stars. Um, There was Adam Davidson on of uh, NPR's Planet Money to talk about the show and economics. Dan Savage of Savage Love, the famed Mr. Savage, was on to talk about the show and sex and relationships. And it's a limited-run series. If you're a fan of the show, you've got to listen. Willa does a great job with it. Um, You can hear more by signing up for Slate Plus. You can start listening today. Go to slate.com slash hangupplus to do it. The United States went into the final match of the World Lacrosse Championships undefeated with preliminary wins by scores of 21 to 3, 20 to 1, and 22 to 3. But in the final match, the U.S. lost to Canada by the score of 8 to 5. This was Canada's third championship compared to nine for the U.S. since the competition began in the 1960s. It was the second for the Canadians, though, in the last three quadrennial tournaments. Though no other team besides the U.S. and Canada has won the event, there was a first-time podium finisher at this year's World Championships. The Iroquois Nationals, who beat Australia 16-5 to to finish in third place. We are now joined by the assistant GM of that team, Ansley Jemison. He also works at Cornell University at their American Indian program. Ansley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. And the World Lacrosse Championships are, as I said, a quadrennial event, and the Iroquois Nationals have been competing there since 1998. This was the first podium finish. Can you describe how this team was able to uh, achieve that and sort of the progress of the program since 1998? I think it's been a maturation process for us. Um, you know, typically, or I guess historically, our the Native American people have been box lacrosse players primarily. Now, just to give you a little bit of history between box lacrosse and field lacrosse, Box lacrosse is played inside of a, a hockey rink on a cement floor is what we typically would have played in. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy, whatever else, and where does that fall into line with uh, the Native tradition and all that? But uh, up in Canada, where the, the sport is actually the national sport, it was something that really kind of appealed to Native people, I think. Uh, it's kind of a rough and tough sport, and a lot of our guys uh, spend a lot of time playing box lacrosse. So playing in the tight, tighter parameters and things like that, our stick skills probably were much more advanced, and you know we uh, uh, excelled in the game pretty quickly. 
And uh, moving to the field game, we had a lot more wide open space to kind of, um, you know, be a little bit more creative with our game. So, uh, you know, it, it's taken us a little while to kind of adjust to the uh, the length and the distance of the field at times, I guess. But um, to be honest, I mean, I think that the stick skills is really what's uh, uh, brought us up to speed with everybody else. Ansley, you mentioned how lacrosse is the national sport in Canada, but it's not just a sport. I mean, there's a real philosophical, historical underpinning here in terms of how you play the game and why you play the game. Can you talk a little bit about what lacrosse means and how it's taught to natives? Absolutely. Well, as a young boy, um, you're given a lacrosse stick, you know, at an early age, you know, as soon as you can walk pretty much. Traditionally, it's a wooden lacrosse stick is what you're given. And uh, the wooden lacrosse stick has a significance because it comes from nature. And this game was a a gift that was given to us from the creators, what our belief is. And so we're playing for his enjoyment. So there's a process in getting that wooden lacrosse stick. You know, you have to go into the woods and you have to pick the proper wood and you you have to cure it. It takes almost a full year just for that, that piece of wood to be ready to be played with. You know, we have some uh, excellent stick makers that do actually still carve these. Uh, Alfie Jock from the Onondaga Nation is actually probably one of the more prominent ones today. He's a much sought-after person to get a lacrosse stick from. And so there's a spirit from the stick that you get, but that spirit also comes from nature. And so there's a connection to Mother Earth. But then also, you know, it's a, it's a medicinal game in a lot of our communities. Um, we can use it for healing. We can use it for conflict resolution at times, you know. Um, and it's not so much like a battle or a war that we're trying to settle a dispute on. It's more or less, you know, if there's any kind of competition between communities or maybe even between clans or something like that, you can have this conflict resolution game. First one to win gets to either be the host for the next uh, round of ceremonies that we have, or it could be used for anything else, just to kind of make a tough decision easier, I guess. I actually wanted to ask you about the wooden sticks, specifically these really heavy shag bark hickory sticks that are about six times heavier than the aluminum sticks. And they're allowed, they're allowed to be used, we should tell our listeners. But when you brought them out against the Canadians, it caused some controversy. The ESPN analyst was saying how you were beating up the Canadians. And of course, there's a a, they're legal, and B, it's traditional that uh, at least some of your players use these sticks. And then I know that you just reverted back, or the team reverted back to the aluminum sticks for the game against the Americans. So did you think the criticism had any merit, or was, were people not understanding why you were using these sticks? Well, there's been a concerted effort to get rid of the wooden sticks for a lot of years. Um, I mean, I guess that it's become more Americanized or more Europeanized, I guess. And, uh, you know, absolutely, the, the hickory stick is a part of the tradition. It's a wonderful piece of uh, engineering, I guess you could say. Then you have sort of companies and things like that that are out there and kind of perversing the sport a little bit. It's kind of this brash, wild, in-your-face kind of eccentric kind of sport. You know, and it's really not about that. It's actually about tradition. It's actually about respecting people. It's about respecting your opponent. It's about respecting nature and everything around you. And everything that we're using today is all these alloy aluminum metals, um, plastics and things like that. I'm yet to see anything that's been recycled. If we're going to kind of move into a green era here, you know, maybe one of these uh, lacrosse companies can come up with something that's actually a recycled um, material that can be used and it's sustainable. That's something that we, we actually preach about with lacrosse. You know, when we take something from nature, we take something and we put something back. Um, in terms of, you know, the criticism that we received for using the wood sticks, you know, it, if it's within the rules of the game, I mean, we weren't using, using them maliciously. I think that you saw a really good display of uh, FIFA soccer out there when we were playing um, the Canadian team, or maybe you maybe saw, like, a great Broadway play because there's a lot of acting that was going on out there. Or it might have been, like, a swimming pool out there because there's a lot of dives that you've taken. So, you know, you've alluded to the fact that there can be gamesmanship involved in these competitions. It's a very competitive environment. Every team certainly wants to go out and win. Um, but do you feel like in any way competing in something like the World Lacrosse Championships 
is that at all antithetical to what, you know, the spiritual aspect of the game or anything like that? Or do you think that it is possible to try to win, to try to win any way possible and still kind of maintain the spiritual uh, nature of the game or the reason that, that natives get into it at a young age, as you talked about very eloquently? Well, it also gives a, um, I guess, a sense of relevance in the world, you know? I mean, that we're actually competing as a nation, nation to nation. We're, we're asserting our sovereignty there, and uh, we're competing against the U.S. and Canada, you know, where a lot of our players do reside. And, um, you know, we, we chose to carry our own passports. And, um, you know, so that, from that standpoint, I think it's very important. You know, so I think there's a, there's a real um, kind of strong relevance to us playing the game and actually competing in the world championships. And, you know, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, my hat is off to the FIL for recognizing us as, an, as a nation and actually um, allowing us to compete as a nation. Um, but I know that a lot of times the FIL may not be our best friends all the time. Anthony, I'm glad you bring up the issue of recognition. It is sure. interesting and, and it is central to your participation in these tournaments that you are recognized as a nation. Um, four years ago, though, when the Iroquois team qualified to play in the World Championship in the United Kingdom, you were denied entry because the UK wouldn't recognize the passports, even though the State Department had given the team a travel waiver to go there. And ultimately, the team wound up not playing in the tournament. And and I recall I'm reading in particular, there was a great piece by Scott Price in Sports Illustrated, S.L. Price, about the effort to get to that tournament. And it said something about the nation's willingness to sit it out without that recognition and sort of pointed out how important that recognition is to participation for you. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for us to accept that, you know, because what was offered to us was, um, you know, one-time waiver to be able to travel on our document, but they were also offering us passports, U.S. and Canadian passports. They were going to expedite those for us, and, you know, we really believed that we couldn't do that. That was going against everything that we believe in as a people, as, as, a, as a nation, and, you know, we really couldn't make that decision on our own, because as soon as we accepted those passports, that was going to all of a sudden set a precedence for the rest of our people who are back home who are still ex- exerting their sovereignty and um, living their own lives. And so, you know, that was something that we weren't able to do. And um, it wasn't really a conscious decision that we made, um, you know, just as players. But, I mean, it was a conscious decision that we made based on all of our people. And so, you know, rather than go and compete under those terms, we were going to sit it out and stay home. And, um, you know, it hurt. I mean, we had a lot of guys who, you know, that was their last go at it. That was going to be their last chance to maybe play in a world championship. You know, it was very frustrating on my ha- my behalf because I ended up getting put into the general manager role for that and uh, just kind of trying to maintain some normalcy for the team and things like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything that we went through to try to get over there, um, you know, we went down to New York City. They were trying to get us some biometric scans. They wanted to try to do every sort of thing that they could to try to make it so that we could travel. And, um, you know, the U.S. State Department, they came to our, you know, our aid a little bit. They wanted to kind of resolve this. And in the end, it was England's decision that they weren't going to recognize our passports. So, Ansley, there's uh, some talk I was reading that this is a younger team that you guys have and could be even more promising for uh, 2018 and down the road. You mentioned uh, Lyle Thompson. The Thompson brothers um, shared basically the lacrosse equivalent of the Heisman. Um, So what are your goals for going forward? Do you think it's realistic to beat the U.S. in Canada in four years? Well, the nice thing was is that I was a part of the under-19 uh, coaching staff and also the management staff <clears throat> that competed in Finland. And uh, we actually beat the U-19 U.S. team, who was all these vaunted uh, Division One college athletes. We had a few kids that were in college at the time, and uh, mostly kids that were high school-age kids. And uh, we actually, you know, they had probably over 
80,000 kids to probably draw from, you know, playing lacrosse. And we had our, you know, maybe 170 kids that showed up for our, any of our tryouts that we had. And we kind of whittled that down to our 23 best. And uh, we stood toe-to-toe with the U.S. and we beat them in round-robin play. And uh, it, was a, it was a decisive victory. It was a great victory. So I think that we have a lot of up-and-coming youth um, that are going to be playing and competing at the uh, Division One level and also in, in the collegiate level. So, yeah, I think that uh, it is feasible, it is possible, and uh, hopefully that, um, you know, in a few years we actually will have an opportunity to maybe knock off a Canada or a U.S. or be playing for a gold. You know, we uh, certainly believe that after the game that we had against Canada during the round-robin play, we might possibly be able to beat them in the, uh, in the semifinals. And uh, Canada came out, they played a great game, and uh, hats off to them. You know, they went on and won the gold medal. And so I think it was an eye-opener for our guys to realize and see that, hey, you know, here's Team Canada who just won the gold medal. We ran with them for, you know, basically a, a half during round-robin play. Had we put a complete game together, we might have been able to beat them. Congratulations, uh, Ansley, to, to you and the team, and best of luck going forward. Thank you so much. Ansley Jemison is the Assistant General Manager for the Iroquois Nationals. On July 12th, Red Klotz died at age 93 in Margate, New Jersey, leaving behind a legacy as perhaps the losingest coach in sports history. In 1952, Klotz created the Washington Generals as the permanent opponent for the Harlem Globetrotters. In the subsequent decades, Klotz's team lost reportedly more than 14,000 games to the Trotters. As Joe Poznanski wrote in 2007, Klotz has had his pants pulled down in cities all over the world. He has lost on tops of buildings and on aircraft carriers and in prisons. He's lost on grass, on concrete, in cages, on sand, and in water. And Klotz told Poznanski, I don't want anyone on my team that doesn't play to win. Joining us to talk about Red Klotz is Joe Poznanski of NBC Sports, who's with us by phone, appropriately enough, from one of the losingest sports cities in America. Where are you, Joe? I am in Cleveland. Welcome to the show. Cleveland, I think by comparison to Red Klotz, has not known defeat, has not, has not known sadness to the extent uh, that Red Klotz did. But this was not a sad man. Um, and as you've written and other sports writers have written over the years, he saw uh, losing differently than you and I did. Can you explain? First of all, he was, he was just a, a great, great guy. Uh, he was just so much fun to be around. He was such a joyous person. And he knew what he was doing in 1952 when he started the Washington Generals uh, in order to play the Harlem Globetrotters as their semi-permanent opponent. He knew exactly what that entailed. That meant losing to the Globetrotters every single time. So, you know, he, he understood the point, and he understood what his role was and what his team's role was. And yet, on the other hand, it was very, very important to him that they don't play like losers, that they were not losers in themselves. They would lose games, but they would not be losers. And, and that's a very that's a thin line, if you think about it, what that actually means. And, uh, but he, he walked that thin line for 70-some years. I mean, he was involved with the, with the generals and in their various incarnations with their countless different names, uh, you know, pretty much as a player, an owner, a manager, a coach the guy who drove them around from city to city for all those years and, uh, I think, uh, lived a, an amazing life losing basketball games. Now, there's a formula, though, to the Globetrotters, Generals, Atlantic City Seagulls, New York Nationals, whatever they were on a particular night. And the formula was that when the Globetrotters were doing one of their stunts, 
one of their patterns, one of their set gimmicks, the generals would play the foil. But when the generals would come down, they would try to score. And they would, when the Globetrotters weren't in one of their sets, they would try to play defense. There was, there was a sort of internal respect required to be a Washington general, right? That's exactly right. They, they called them reams, and everybody who, who has seen the Globetrotters, which I would imagine is, is about everybody, knows what these are. These are the you hide the ball under your shirt trick and the basketball on a string trick and the when they would go into that little rhythm thing where they would flip the ball around back and forth those were those reams and when they did that they had to not only play the foil but had to play the foil with some level of enthusiasm and excitement about it uh they had to chase the basketball basically for you know entire sets for all these years but when they weren't doing that you know, and they only did that really second quarter and, and uh, fourth quarter is really when they did the reams. So for the most part, the first and third quarters of games, and every time that the generals or the or whatever you wanted to call them were on offense, they were supposed to go full out. They were supposed to try to score every single time they could against the Globetrotters, and they were supposed to try to play real defense when the Globetrotters were not in one of their reams. And, and uh, that was part of the way he kept score was he would look and see how did we do in those sets how did we do in those periods when we were actually supposed to try hard and uh, and he would get on his players if he felt like they were not giving nearly enough effort because that was to him that was a big part of the show the, the reams were only funny because there was a, also a very a period of basketball that should have been very competitive why was the business set up like it was? Why wasn't this just one enterprise where Harlem Globetrotter Inc. controlled the team and also the Patsies they played? I think it's just because it goes back so far. You know, not a lot of people know the full story of Red Klotz. Red Klotz began his basketball career, if you, if you want to call it, with what was then called the Basketball Association of America, which became the NBA. He was, he was in fact, he is still listed as the shortest player to ever win an NBA championship because he was on the very first NBA champion and he was five foot seven and so he still has that that record whatever whatever that's worth so he was a he was a very legitimate basketball player he grew up at a time it's actually a very interesting time in basketball history the game was very Jewish at that time it was really based on a bunch of quality players in Philadelphia who played for a team called the Philadelphia Spas, who were uh, this Jewish basketball team that would wear the Star of David on their shorts. The beginning of the NBA is, is, is tied into that, and he was very much a part of that. And then the Globetrotters uh, approached him to build this team to face them. And this was at a time when the Globetrotters were not the show that they would become. They were beginning to develop that show. So they were supposed to basically travel around the country with them, and nobody thought it was going to last 70, 80 years or how long it's been, but, uh, but it has. So this is one of those occasions when some, someone dies and you look at the obituary and you get the real sense that a connection to a bygone era has been lost. You mentioned the early days of the NBA, and there aren't that many people who really connect back then, but in this kind of deeper way, like he talks about, how did you, you know, come up with the name Washington Generals? He told Tim Crothers in SI 1995, he's like, well, I could just thumped Adlai Stevenson and generals were really popular. And this is a guy who's like never updated his references from around 1950. But I imagine, Joe, as you had the experience of spending time with him, that you really kind of experienced 
you know, his knowledge um, of of the history of of the game and also just all that he saw just throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. Yeah, it was it was incredible to, to be with him. You know, I, I went to Margate and spent time with him. And it's easy to forget because you think about when you whenever people would think about the Globetrotters, they would think about this team trotting the globe, being all over the world, but that's the generals went with them. And so he would talk about, you know, playing basketball by the Great Wall of China, and he would talk about playing in front of kings in, in Africa, and he would talk about, you know, the time that he, he played in front of the Shah before uh, he had to leave Iran. And it's like his life would follow this, this path of world history, which is utterly fascinating. And here, here he is, he's just this this little guy in, in Margate, New Jersey, you know, with, with his little office and a few photos on the wall, and, and he'd lived this extraordinary basketball life. And there was just so much wisdom, I think, that he developed over the years from, from being in all of those places and seeing how basketball, the way that it carried itself, the way that people, you know, I remember him saying that there were times that he couldn't tell where he was based on the crowd. But he always knew when he was playing in the Soviet Union because nobody would laugh. That was the way he would know that he was playing there because he would hear no laughter in the crowd. There was just so much of, of that that, uh, that was in him, and it would just come out in, in surprising ways. He would just be talking about something entirely unrelated, and, the, and he would suddenly bring up something about the time that he, you know, ate at Harry Truman's favorite restaurant or something. And it, it, it really was extraordinary. Joe, you're a man who appreciates nostalgia. And, I mean, there is a part of, of me, certainly, that associates red clots with being a 10-year-old and watching the Globetrotters on Wide World of Sports. And the way basketball has evolved, it's kind of incredible that there's still a place for something like the Globetrotters. I mean, I guess in some some regards, the Globetrotters, while they continue and they've been through litigation and splits and business issues, they, they're still out there. But it's also on And One mixtape tour world now, too. How do the Globetrotters manage to stay relevant? How did they through, you know, through Red Klotz's career and up to now? Well, I think for a long time, and, and I think you bring up a great point, I often think about the 70s when, when I was growing up, that the biggest stars, the sports stars of the time, were Muhammad Ali, who, of course, everybody knew, Evil Knievel, and the Globetrotters. Those yeah. were like the biggest stars. It was, that, was the, that was the time we were in where these imaginary people or these daredevils could be just enormous, enormous stars because, well, you know, for one thing, we didn't have many other options. If that's, if that's what Wide World of Sports gave us, that's what we watched. So I think it has been hard for the Globetrotters since then I think that was their peak. That was the time when Meadowlark Lemon and Curly Neal and those guys were were really, truly world famous. And I think it's been harder. They've, they've had to do many different things. Of course, they went through the stretch of time where they brought Lynette Woodard in as the first woman player, and they brought in other kinds of things to try to gimmick it up a little bit. But I think that they found their voice again a few years ago where they just basically became sort of what they had been from the first place, which was just a team that comes to you wherever you happen to be. So they, they would travel the country in particular, all of these small towns that have small arenas, the Globetrotters would, would be there, and, and uh, it was sort of a, a show that came to you. I think as a national thing, 
getting on television, uh, that those, those days are kind of over for the globe. Was Klotz, was Klotz aware of, of the decline, and how did he feel about the changes? He never was aware of the decline. He would call them the world-famous Harlem Globetrotters to the day he died. That was his, uh, the way he viewed them. I, I think he was fully, uh, he fully believed in the power of the Globetrotters. And he always was in character. I mean, it was hard to get him out of character. He, he, would, he would talk about the Globetrotters and, and their, you know, their magical basketball abilities really pretty much constantly. I mean, you would say to him, you know, all of these things that you, you guys did and he would talk sort of like the way that old professional wrestlers would talk about how wrestling was real. He would that's yeah. how he would view the Globetrotters. He never broke K Fab. He never broke <laughs> Gen Fab. So I saw the Globetrotters. I've seen them three times in the past four years. I don't know. I'm sort of fascinated with them and what they with your symbolize. kids. Mike? Yeah, a couple times with my kids, a couple times to do reports, a couple times combination of both. They have introduced a four-point play, which you might laugh, but it is pretty fun at the last two minutes of a quarter. And a lot of Globetrotter innovations eventually became NBA innovations, I want to warn you. But I did notice that they didn't play the Washington Generals anymore. They played teams that are called International Elite or Global Select. International Elite or Global Select. And they are the Washington Generals, I believe. They're still the Red Clots team. And that's, that name just switches by, um, by date, I think. The, it's the same roster for International Elite and Global Select. And I was wondering if, if you knew about that. And my, you know, my theory was I couldn't get a straight answer. And maybe this was part of KFAB. But you know, in this day of not post-9-11 patriotism, maybe beating up the Generals is not something the Globetrotters want to seem to be doing. Or is it that international corporations are more the foil or just changing things up and getting away from tradition? I, I think they've always changed the name. You know, it's funny you bring up the four-point play. Uh, one of the times that I went to see him, I think it was at the time that there was really some, some momentum to try to get him into the Hall of Fame. And I think I went there to talk to him about that. And I sat in there and he, for an hour and a half before I could ever even get going, he talked to me about the four-point play. He thought I was there to talk about the innovation of the four-point play, and he just went on and on about the four-point play and how it, it needed to come to the NBA, and he was listing off NBA players he thought would be good at the four-point play, and it was quite entertaining. I it's not bad, right? When you saw it in a game, it, it does add a layer of excitement. He really believed in it. He really yeah. believed in it. I think at the time, Reggie Miller might have still been playing. He was, <laughs> he was convinced that <laughs> Reggie Miller would be the perfect four-point play guy. That, that was, for some reason, that was very, very important to him. But the team has always changed names. I mean, it's, it's just been a constant variety of names through the years. And the, they were called the International All-Stars. You know, they won a game 40 years ago. But it's been 45 years, I guess, now probably. Yeah, uh, they actually won a game. Right? And uh, I think that the, the day they won the game, they were the International All-Stars. I think that was their name. Or they were the New Jersey Reds, or they were the Atlantic City Seagulls, or they were something else. They constantly change names in order to, one, I think, keep the mystery going, even though it was obviously exactly the same team. But also, I think they usually try to change the name in order to sort of fit into the times, kind of like what you're saying. And I do think international elite does sound like uh, like maybe they're playing against uh, corporations that have moved jobs away from, from America. So uh, I do think that was always a part of what they were doing. They won, they won a few games, though, right, Joe? And, and the one that you referenced, Klotz was 50 years old, and he hit a two-handed set shot at the buzzer. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. It would have been a four-point play today. I think it was. But I it's think, a great story. He said that the way he told the story. it was from a thousand feet, actually. The way he told the story, he said wall. that they noticed that the Globetrotters just out of it, and they just kept playing ball. 
Yeah, yeah, they just kept playing, and, and uh, he made the shot. He actually made the shot with three seconds left. I did fairly intensive research to find out, which was not easy because <laughs> nothing was in, in the Globetrotters' history is easy to find. But he hit a shot with three seconds left, and the Globetrotters came down, and Meadowlark Lemon tried to hit a hook shot to win it at the buzzer, and he missed. And they kind of ran off the field. This was in Martin, Tennessee. <laughs> And they kind of ran off the court like, yay, we won. And the crowd was stunned. And they started <laughs> booing. The crowd started booing. And he went into the locker room and they poured orange uh, drink over his head. That was like they, that was their champagne. It was orange pop. And then he, they threw him in the shower with his clothes on. And uh, it was the one celebration that he got as, uh, as uh, coach of the, uh, of the Washington Generals. So it's, it's probably not fair to evaluate Klotz or the Generals or whatever you want to call them as a team, they're more like a straight man, right? And they're successful on the night if the crowd has a good time. And I think maybe we can end by talking about, if you remember, Joe, there's a particular quote that Klotz had that you wrote about in 2010 as kind of your favorite quote or one of your favorite quotes in sports history and one that really exemplified what Klotz was about. And it was it had to do with the game on ice. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was something... It was so good. You know, you get all of these press releases as sports writers for, from people. And so the Globetrotters send a press release about how they're going to be playing the Generals on ice. I guess it was in Central Park, right? You know, the press release is pretty typical. Uh, they're going to play this game on ice. It's the first time they played on ice. And then there's a quote from Red Colotz, and I'm not going to get it exactly, but I, the quote was basically, finally we got them on ice. We excel on ice. We, as if they've been waiting all their lives for this opportunity to finally play basketball on ice against the Globetrotters. And I think that's sort of the reference. I mean, they were straight men, but I think the great thing about that is, like straight men in comedy, it's so much harder than it looks. You know, I mean, it's like if you don't really chase after the basketball, if you don't really look befuddled when they pull down your pants, if you don't really sort of like look all over the place when the basketball's under the guy's shirt, it's not funny. If they're sort of half-heartedly going at it, it just doesn't work. It's like, okay, well, I guess I mean, the guy's acting like he's fooled, but we know he's not fooled. You have to like give so much of yourself to be the straight man, and I think that was what a big part of what he meant by winning. I think winning meant being absolutely at your best, even in something as silly as like getting drenched when they throw that bucket of water on you, that's part of winning too. And I think that's why he lived such a fulfilling life. Thanks so much, Joe. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon, although perhaps not about as charming and illustrious figure as Red Klotz. Thank you. Joe Poznanski is a national columnist for NBC Sports, and he has a book coming out soon on Tom Watson. All right, now time for Afterballs. Mike Pesca, you have uh, a term that you would like us to use today. Right, so in the All-Star game, there was uh, a, a moment of great national consternation where Adam Wainwright maybe gave Derek Jeter a pitch that maybe he could hit. It was still a fastball, but maybe he got too much of the plate, and maybe that was intentional. That was called a pipe shot. But the history of this is long, and it even happened in a real game, probably more than once. 1968, Mickey Mantle comes up to bat against the Detroit Tigers. Denny McClain. Denny McClain pitching. Denny's like, I like Mickey Mantle. Hey, let's let him hit a home run. Catcher tells Mickey Mantle. Mickey's like, all right, how do you like it? Mantle says, high and tight, mediocre cheese. 
Papa John's. I think it was pizza like, within thirty minutes. He was about to. It was. It was the end of his career. He was about to go ahead of Mel Ott on the on the home run list, right? But then he had another one over the weekend. He was tied so, with Jimmy Fox. Jimmy actually. Fox. I'm sorry, Jimmy yeah, Fox. Yeah. But then he had another one in the, in the last game of the season or the penultimate game of the season to uh, to erase the stain of the mediocre cheese. Yes. The sta- By the way, <laughs> if if it was so easy to erase the stain of the mediocre cheese, I've had a. I'd have a lot more shirts that worked. <laughs> so. Amateur afterball namers would have gone with pipe shots, but no. You went a layer deeper. You spelunked into the mediocre cheese. A layer of cheese. Uh, Pesca, Mike Pesca, what is your mediocre cheese? Let's keep it in the national pastime of sports, and I think we're about to enter a golden age of terrible headlines, or at least the opportunity for fun headlines. So the New York Mets have a pitcher named Zach Wheeler, and if you thought that a Z Wheeler pitching in New York, one of them was enough, you'd be wrong. The Yankees saw what the Mets were doing, saw the obvious marketing potential of a Z Wheeler, and they went with Zealous Wheeler. They called up a third baseman, formerly in the Brewers organization, named Zealous Wheeler. Zealous Wheeler is such a great name. He could uh, inspire similar synonymous names like Fervid Wheeler or mm, Enthusiastic Wheeler. Oh, that would be a great name. So we have Z Wheeler at the hot corner. And think of all the headlines about the joy Zealous Wheeler has for the game. But it's not just Zealous Wheeler, because as we go around the American League, we see that the Yankees' main rival, the Boston Red Sox, have a player named Mookie Betts. Red Sox go all in with Mookie Betts. Guessing fastball, Mookie Betts. Red Sox take a great gamble as Mookie Betts. Yankees ponder, Mookie Betts. Yankees cautious, Mookie Betts. And then in Texas, there's a guy named Rognid. Rognid, or it's not Roughnid. I think it's Rognid or Rognid. O-D-O-R. He's a sweet field and second baseman. Odor. Wait until the opposition gets a whiff of odor. And what if Mookie Betts and Odor play in the same game? Or Zealous Wheeler. This could be an A. This is an AL All-Star team of the future. Although Zealous Wheeler is not as good as the other guys. But Zealous, Odor, and Betts now playing for the AL All-Star team. Headline writers, go. That would be an All-Star game I would actually be willing to watch. Uh, Maybe that's they should change the All-Star <laughs> game format. The American yeah. League against. It should just be two teams of great names. Stefan, what is your mediocre cheese? There is a lovely profile by Tom Verducci in this week's Sports Illustrated of the incomparable baseball writer, incomparable writer, really, Roger Angel, who this week will finally be honored at Cooperstown. Angel is 93 years old and, we learned, still shows up an hour or two a day at the New Yorker offices to peruse fiction submissions or write the occasional piece about baseball or, of late, death for the magazine or its website. His most recent effort, and with Angel they never seem like effort, but of course they are Herculean, each and every one, was a short pay-in last month to Don's. Zimmer. It starts thusly. Don Zimmer, who died yesterday at 83, was an original Met and an original Sweetie Pie. His 66 years in baseball were scripted by Disney and produced by Ken Burns. Before that, haikus about his dog Andy. Before that, on triple plays. Before that, a wry little meditation on a photograph shot by his stepfather, E.B. White, of 10 or so year old Roger pitching to his mother, Catherine. Before that, And all of this is since February from a man in his 90s. Before that, 5,175 words about what it's like to be a man in his 90s. That one begins like this. Check me out. The top two knuckles of my left hand look as if I've been worked over by the KGB. No, it's more as if I'd been a catcher for the Hall of Fame pitcher Candy Cummings, the inventor of the curveball, who retired from the game in 1877. 
To put this another way, if I pointed that hand at you like a pistol and fired at your nose, the bullet would nail you in the left knee. Arthritis. Every hubristic sports writer has read Roger Angel and thought, boy, I wish the place where I work would let me write like that. Or if the place I work would let me write like that, I know I could. Or I wonder when Roger Angel will die so I can try to write like that. (laughs) But none of us can or will write like that. And we all hope Roger Angel never dies, though he is intensely aware, 5,175 words aware, that one day, probably soon, he will. It shouldn't surprise me, he wrote, if at this time next week I'm surrounded by family, gathered on short notice, they're sad and shocked, but also a little pissed off to be here to help decide after what's happened, what's to be done with me now. In addition to Candy Cummings, Angel in that essay name-checked Derek Jeter and Robinson Cano and quoted Casey Stengel. His lineup card, A Familiar Dead, included Bart Giamatti and Dan Quisenberry. Open to any page in a book collection of Angel's baseball writing, and you'll find a sentence worth reading and reading again. And you'll peel a mental post-it to copy that one someday. I'm trying to copy him right now. Slightly arch, gliding along, commas in tow, a quick punch at the end. You'll also find a word that will stop you cold because of its context or just its existence. One such moment came for me in December 1987 while reading Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, Angel's recap of the Twins Cardinals World Series six weeks prior and the season that produced it. Here's the sentence. The lowly, tatterdemalion Mets used to do it all the time, and I can still remember how much fun we had back then when defeats almost went unnoticed and each little win was like a party. I had to look it up. Tatterdemalion. Ragged or disreputable in dress or appearance, being in a decayed state or condition, broken down, dilapidated, beggarly, disreputable. I joked about the word in a letter to a friend, but it stuck. It's my Roger Angel word, my point of connection, my personal tribute. I put it in my last book. I lace up the tatterdemalion umbro soccer cleats that I've had since college, the right toe unglued from the sole. And also later in an NFL piece on Slate in which I referenced the lowly Tatterdemalion Lions. I thanked Angel there. Angel apparently loves Tatterdemalion as much as he made me love it. He first called the Mets that in Mets Redux in October 1973 after New York took the NL East with a win percentage of 509, the lowest ever recorded by a winner or demi-winner in either league before they were put down by the A's in an absorbing, disheveled seven-game World Series. Then last fall in Motown, a blog post about Mariano Rivera's final game at the desultory end to a forgettable year for the Yankees, Angel wrote this. Sagging in the Tatterdemalion struggle for that second American League wild card in the last week of the season, they will be caught by the heels in the next day or two and gobbled up by the statistical werewolf. Roger Angel, you are never Tatterdemalion. May the statistical werewolf pass you by. Josh, what's your mediocre cheese? <laughs> That's funny. I made an amazing discovery recently, Stefan, when Grantland's Bill Barnwell tweeted not so long ago that one of the best things on Twitter is the account 70 mile per hour fastball. Mike uh, Pesca, I'm going to ask you, do you know what that Twitter account is? Is it Mark Burley's account? <laughs> it is not. That would be a good handle for him, though. It is an account that roars to life every time a position player might be getting ready to pitch in a Major League Baseball game. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, fantastic. And it's not just when they're in the game. They they have different like levels like of alert if somebody's warming up, if even a game is getting to like where it seems like it might be reaching that point in the 15th or 16th inning. But most recently, the account um, noted an urgent alert on July 10th, Chris Jimenez entering the pitch the ninth for Texas versus the Angels. Subsequent tweets, Jimenez is featuring a fastball at 84 to 86. 
um, pretty impressive, appears to have a nominal idea of where it is going. Then Jimenez induces a David Freeze ground out, KCJ Crone, an off-speed pitch of some type, generally looks competent. His final line was more than competent. One inning pitched, no hits, no runs, no walks, and one strikeout. Uh, position players who pitch, if you follow this account, you'll know, generally do much worse than that. See Boston's Mike Karp, who knuckleballed his way earlier this year to five walks in a single inning. According to Baseball Reference, there are 437 players who've pitched in a major league game, but do not have pitcher listed as one of their positions. That includes 19 Hall of Famers, but only three of those have played after World War II. Those three, Stan Musial, pitched a single batter in a kind of a publicity stunt, Ted Williams, and the most recent of them, Wade Boggs, another knuckleballer. But we are now, thankfully, to those of us who love position players pitching, in a golden age of guys who do not pitch taking the mound. Maybe we could see Zealous Wheeler opposed Zach Wheeler in some future Subway series. Jason Stark of ESPN. I can uh, smell that happening. I can smell it too. He reports that there have been 12 position player uh, pitching appearances this year, more than in any other season since 1961 already, except for one, and that one was last year when it was uh, 14 times in 2013. Among this year's feats of position player pitching, two different guys, the Tigers' Danny Wirth and the Dodgers' Drew Butera, have each taken the mound twice in a single week. Perhaps the dumbest use of anonymous sourcing ever, Stark had an unnamed veteran scout watch the position players throw the ball, eliciting some such comments as the Rangers' Mitch Moreland, his fastball has a little more life than the other guys. (laughs) (laughs) we got to protect anonymity there. Uh, On Danny Worth, his knuckleball got me intrigued. So why the increase this year? could just be a blip. Um, Brewers manager Ron Renneke told Stark um, it has to do with protecting pitchers. We just baby these guys too much. We don't let them yeah. stay out there and take their beating. You got to throw Danny Worth in there when, when a guy's getting knocked around, you know, with all these Tommy John surgeries and whatnot. ESPN's Sweet Spot blog had a better explanation, I think, which is that even in this era when there are like 13 pitchers on a team, um, there's so much specialization. You've got like your seventh inning guy, your eighth inning guy, your ninth inning guy, your, you know, le- your loogie, your lefty one-out guy. You've got your second loogie. And then by the time you get to maybe the 12th or 13th inning, all of these guys have taken their spots and you have nobody left. So no you, more loogies. So, yeah, you're out of loogies. You throw in a Mike Carp or, Luke you know, Lewis. whoever. Chris Davis actually got a win in 2012 because uh, the Orioles had no pitchers left. And he got a win because the Red Sox themselves had no pitchers left. So they had to bring in Darnell McDonald. Um, and so it was a position player on position player faceoff. Nice. Um, so what, should I, what will, thought will I leave you with besides the fact that position players pitching is great and follow 70 MPH fastball? So SB Nation's Grant Brisby has collected the last time every team in the majors has had a position player pitch. Every team has done it since 2008 with six exceptions. The Rockies, which is surprising given that they play in Coors Field, a lot of runs. The A's, the Angels, the Giants, the National Slash Expo. So so there has not been a Washington National position player to pitch. Um, The last one was 1990 with the Expos. Then the champion is the Braves, 1989. John Russell was the last one. So the Braves hate fun. They're the least fun franchise in all of baseball, all of sports, perhaps. So we should shame them until they bring in, they should have, you know, instead of releasing Dan Ugla with his one whatever batting Ugla. average, make that guy go out and pitch. Rub his face in it. Dan Ugla should have been pitching for the Braves. 
I like the idea, if we have a loogie, but then we call in, you know, Wade Boggs, wouldn't he be maybe a thrabooby? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even care what that is, but yes. Third baseman, one out guy. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, we love your feedback when we talked about today. Zealous Wheeler. That, that would be quite a thrabooby. Uh, you'd be a zealous ever. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hangup and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Fola. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember through boobies. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Thanks Remember for listening. Clots. Remember everyone. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.